Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is the morning after the primary elections throughout the country, the good, the bad, the very ugly. Uh, in our newsletter this morning, we tried to break it all down. But we are calling in a specialist to look at what mattered, what doesn't matter, what the tea leaves might be telling us right now. So uh, welcome back, Josh Kroshauer, who is now a senior political reporter correspondent for Axios. So congratulations on the new gig, Josh. Thanks, Charlie. And uh, it's great to be back on the Bulwark podcast the day after such a, a big election night. So does this mean you're going to be speaking in shorter sentences now that you're at Axios? It's just like really, you're going to be really short and pithy. And So I'm trying. I, I got the smart part of smart mm-hmm. brevity down. The brevity I'm learning as I, as I start and move into the job. Well, you know, you and I were having this conversation right before we started the podcast. I, I have to say that, that I am a big fan of the smart brevity approach because, I mean, it's it's not that that there's not a value in, in long-form analysis, but also the reality is there's just so much out there. And there there is a real, I think there's a, there's a particular value in people who just get right to the point. And, you know, what is the nub of it? You know, you know, you know cut aside, you know, cut away all of the ephemera and the filler and everything and say, what are the things that are the most important that you need to know? So I, I really do appreciate that, that style. So, uh, and, 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 you know, it looks like you're adapting pretty well to it, Josh. Look, you know, as you're, an analyst, you're a clear thinker. As an analyst, it is important to, not to beat around the bush, but just to explain what everything means. And, and there's so much noise. You want to just get to that signal. So Axios, I mean, it's just done a great job at, at prioritizing the most important uh, analysis, reporting, you name it, and, and all of its coverage. Okay, well, let's cut right to the chase on a variety of things. Let's start with Kansas, because of all the things that happened last night, that seemed to me, and you can feel free to disagree, that seemed to me to be, uh, first of all, one of the most uh, surprising results, the abortion vote. And and number two, uh, as an indicator of something that might be happening in the midterm elections that we were perhaps uncertain about. So give me your take about what happened in Kansas, why it happened and what it means. Yeah, this is a surprise in the sense that I think a lot of observers thought that this referendum, which would have allowed state legislators to ban or greatly restrict abortion in Kansas, I think a lot of folks thought it would fail. Mm-hmm. The fact that it failed by an 18-point margin in one of the more Republican states in the country, and even more importantly, Charlie, that folks turned out uh, in all parts of the state, uh, huge, against, huge turnout against this. Yeah, against this referendum. So it was a huge motivator for the state's Democratic voters, but also suburban voters, independent voters around Kansas City, who turned out at almost near 2018 levels. The, the year we had a big Democratic wave in Kansas, and this was otherwise a, a pretty sleepy August primary. So this, the, the lessons from this election are going to be learned from. You know, for Democrats uh, going ahead to the November midterms. that it's, it's still looking like a good Republican midterm election, but the issue of abortion can't be overlooked, especially in states where abortion rights is, is literally hanging in the balance, where if you elect a Republican governor versus a Democratic governor, it could change abortion policy in, in your home state. Well, this was the big question, whether or not abortion would be a sufficient issue to motivate Democratic voters to come out in big numbers. And, 
you know, yesterday's primary in Kansas was the first time we really tested the theory that uh, this would be a motivating issue. And uh, they turned out in these, as you point out, massive numbers. So obviously a big win for Democrats, but also, uh, you know, as Will Salatin points out in uh, in the morning shots this, this morning, this was also done with a lot of Republican votes. So Democrats are motivated. Republicans are divided on this issue. Yeah, there's always been a Republican divide in Kansas over the the right the right wing of the, the very activist conservatives. Sam Brownback learned this when he was governor and lost a lot of support from some of the the more traditional moderate Republicans. Uh, and those moderate Republicans in the Kansas City suburbs and in some other uh, metropolitan areas across the state uh, clearly uh, were uncomfortable with. The, the Republican leadership's position on abortion. They didn't want to give the state legislature full power to, to set abortion policy. They're seeing what's happened next door in, in Missouri, a similarly Republican state, where it's one of the most restrictive set of abortion laws in the entire country after the, the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade. So, yeah, this is not just a Democratic issue. It's an issue that will persuade some independent voters in, in key states and districts, especially with this is this is we're, we're looking writ large at our politics, Charlie. Both both sides are playing to the extremes in many ways. Right, right. But this is an issue if you have a Republican candidate who doesn't favor exceptions for rape and incest or even the life of the mother, that will incur a significant political penalty. I think in, in a lot of these races, and there are a lot of Republican candidates who have taken that position on the battleground map. Yeah. Now this is uh, of course rank speculation, but. If you have this kind of a margin in a state like Kansas, uh, which was you know so impressive, close to sixty percent of, of of the vote, it does raise the question: What would happen if you had a referendum in in a conservative state like Texas or Oklahoma? Um, I mean, this this does, I think, change the way the the political world and the conventional wisdom is going to be looking at these issues. I don't know that many Republicans are going to be able to back off from from going to the extreme. I mean, all the momentum seems to be to uh, uh, support the most draconian types of restrictions with the least possible exceptions. And I would say that this has got to be setting off some uh, some red alarm bells. Yeah, I mean, the difference between now and November is that this was a referendum on abortion. You, all you had to do was yeah. vote on abortion rights. In November, there are a lot of other decisions, right, a lot right, of other right, issues right. that are going to come into play. So I, I think this is going to be a factor, uh, perhaps an important factor in the November midterms. It's not going to trump the issue of inflation, the issue of the economy. But I do also think it's it's very striking, Charlie, that when you look at the latest round of national polling, abortion is now basically the number two issue mm -hmm. in the country behind the economy. It used to be crime, immigration, more issues that favor Republicans. Many of the top polls now have abortion at that second spot. Those are a lot of Democratic voters, the base becoming more energized, more, more engaged in the midterm elections. Uh, but, but it also is, is, is an issue that, again, in, in these swing state races where you have Republican nominees for governor that are taking uh, fairly right-wing extreme positions on the issue, it could carry a very significant political cost and a close contest. Okay, so I want to get to what happened in Missouri and Arizona and Michigan in, in a moment. But I, I had a, a brief interview this morning with a, a Danish political reporter 
who, and once again, I'm reminded how the Europeans know American politics so well, and we know nothing about Danish politics except that Netflix series, which is actually kind of entertaining. Anyway, he asked the question, what effect will the killing of Zawahiri, is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> it's been so long since we've done the Al-Qaeda names. Will that actually boost Joe Biden's approval ratings? Does it reverse his decline? I wanted to get your take on that, and then I'll tell you what, what I told him. Yeah, I, I don't think it will have a dramatic impact because we have such short attention spans. And frankly, the, the war on terror has become a secondary issue, if that, in, in our politics lately. I think Biden's had a good week or two, yeah. uh, and, and he's he's turning the, the tide a little bit. a very long time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, look, I think big picture, he's got Zawahiri, big national security accomplishment. Uh, gas prices are, are coming down. And I think you've got to give him credit for that if you're going to blame him for the $5 gallon gas prices back in June. And, you know, again, I don't think this is going to have a huge impact on the midterms, but just the fact that Democrats are close to coming together to pass a health care climate change bill, Joe Manchin, maybe Kirsten Cinema in the end, can unite the party, get something passed and stop the, the circular firing squad that was dominating so much of this year. So that that alone, I don't think that's going to, again, dram- dramatically turn around the midterms. No, but these incremental gains can turn a what was looking like a really big red wave to perhaps just a more more, more modest uh, Republican win in November. By the way, that's pretty much what I told him. I, I said, and I used the exact phrase, you know, we have short attention spans. And so I, I think there might be a short-term bump, but um, I wouldn't expect it would be de- decisive. And of course, we all remember, you know, George H.W. Bush uh, getting a 91% approval rating during the Iraq war and then being defeated for re-election the next year. And of course, our attention spans are exponentially shorter now, <laughs> given, the, given the current climate. But, you know, I, would, I as, as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Biden has you know, notch some successes, which is really the first time since last August that he's had good news. When you think about just one bad thing after another, whack, 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 we'll see what happens with this Inflation Reduction Act, whether Kirsten Cinema comes along. But it does seem, at least on the surface, that the, the top line elements pull well, and that if the Democrats manage to message it, it will be at least an incremental positive Plus, it changes this narrative that Joe Biden has, you know, as a failed president, uh, you know, that he is, you know, that he's weak and feckless. So these things, you know, may over time have an impact. But, you know, what do, what do you think about that package, you know, bringing back the package, recasting it from Build Back Better to the Inflation Reduction Act, which at least on the surface, seems to be a, a marketing upgrade. <laughs> you know, it's notable, Charlie, that they're calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. That alone is a concession to the moderates within the party, the Joe Manchins, the, the swing state members who were hearing from their constituents about the prospect of trillions of dollars in government spending as part of Build Back Better, and they didn't like it. They were worried about it. They thought it would worsen inflation. And now this, you know, frankly, this is a much more modest bill. It's not trillions of dollars. It's about a, uh, it's still a lot of money, five hundred billion dollars. But it, it is a, it is a bill that moderates and even Larry Summers can learn to love. If, if Biden took this approach from the beginning, I think he'd be in much better political shape. There seems to be a very subtle course correction taking place in the White House, where they're they're focusing on incremental movement on issues like guns, the gun control bipartisan bill passed through Congress. You got the mm-hmm. semiconductor bill that uh, doesn't 
uh, or so Senate Republicans actually supported. Uh, this is a more modest, more moderate bill that Joe Manchin and Larry Summers support. That that's where that's Biden's sweet spot. That's this is where he should have governed from the beginning. He wouldn't perhaps be in such a political pickle if he started out this way. But it is a sign that he's performing a course correction and that the moderates are taking over after uh, some big high profile progressive defeats earlier in the administration. So we have used the term political malpractice to describe, uh, you know, some of the things the Democrats have done in the past. But uh, this this week over the last uh, several days, I think we've seen one of the one of the worst episodes of political malpractice that I can recall by Republicans in the Senate voting against the burn pit bill, the veterans bill, and then having to reverse themselves, cave in. So you have an, a, you know, a lot of uh, Republican senators who voted for it in June, voted against it last week, and then had to scramble to vote for it again when nothing has changed. The blowback from the veteran community has been tremendous. And the Republicans just look in absolute disarray on all of this issue. So give me your take on what happened, because as, as I've said before on this podcast, you would assume that these senators would, would have the self-preservation gene to realize how horrifically bad that vote would be. And yet here we are. What happened here? Yeah, this is a, a couple couple rough plays from Mitch McConnell, who's normally a, a pretty savvy mm-hmm. tactician. Number one, he kind of got played by the Democrats on helping get that reconciliation bill through by passing the semicon by you know getting mm-hmm. Republican votes for the semiconductor bill earlier, uh, and then now you have just sort of this tone deaf PR you know blockade that certain Republican senators were doing on this bill before public opinion intervened, and it looks like it's gonna gonna pass overwhelmingly now in the Senate. But yeah, like this hasn't just been a, a move towards moderation from the Democrats in the Senate, but it, it's, it's emphasizing sort of the extremes, the intransigence of, of, of the Republican opposition at the worst possible time, not just on Capitol Hill, certainly with this legislation, but also in these primaries with, with some of the nominees that are more to the, to the far right of the, the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. Well, I thought that John Stewart has um, obviously played a tremendous role, and he was on one of the cable shows yesterday, I can't remember which one, and they asked him about, you know, why Republicans had voted against this after voting for this and then reversed themselves and voted for it. And he had an interesting observation. He said he wasn't attributing it to malevolence, but as an indication of how isolated and narrow their focus is, by which I think he's using Tim Miller's term, the DC brainworms, where these folks had gotten so insular looking inside the Senate you know, being pissed off about the reconciliation bill that they lost sight of this larger picture. I mean, it's kind of a reminder of how sometimes your focus can become so, so inside baseball that you forget what a complete idiot you look like outside the building. And I think this was a pretty good example of that. Yeah. And that's nothing new, Charlie. Like, but it's a bipartisan sin in Washington that so focused on the legislative uh, sausage making that you forget the politics, you forget how normal people are viewing your your actions. You know, John, look, John Stewart engaged in a little bit of demagoguery. I, I think he's uh, his his heart is in the right place, and I think he achieved a really big victory for for veterans. But um, this is what happens in Washington all the time. 
you block a bill because you want to get another bill to be this is very very much why people hate washington why they hate the legislative process um stewart gave it the celebrity firepower to really move move the needle in a way that you you might not otherwise see on a different type of legislation what do you say demagoguery i thought he handled it pretty well yeah well you know i I thought this was going to pass at some point it was a matter of timing and uh, Stewart certainly expedited the process, but I think he, he you know, again, this is, you see these holdups on, on, on otherwise uh, good legislation because of what goes on in Washington, how Washington handles legislation. And I don't think this was anything unique, but he certainly uh, gave, gave Republicans a big shove and, and pressured them. And I, I think Republicans obviously underestimated how high profile this bill was or how invested the entire veteran community was in this and you know bipartisan you have you know the the more conservative organizations the more liberal organizations they were all really passionate about all this okay we need to talk about the story out of michigan just is so bizarre where you have one of the 10 republicans who voted to impeach donald trump the second time around peter meyer running for re-election obviously you know trump world is trying to defeat him Democrats poured in a huge amount of money to, in effect, boost his insurrectionist, conspiracist, nutball opponent, John Gibbs, who beat him last night. This is one of those cases where it really feels, is it first of all, the hypocrisy of the Democrats who claim that, you know, the attack on democracy is an existential threat and then going to kill one of the handful of Republicans that had sided with them on the impeachment. And then number two, the danger of, you know, perhaps, you know, be caring, you know, why you need to be careful what you wish for having this conspiracy theorist election denier who is now the Republican nominee for a congressional seat that he could, he could win in November. So your thoughts about that? It's the definition of playing with fire. And this is this is yep. probably the most egregious intervention yep. that Democrats have made because you, you said it, Charlie. Number one, they clearly made the difference in this race. It was closer than I think most folks expected. It was a about a three point win for the Trump endorsed. Mm-hmm. That, that was mm-hmm. clearly the half million dollars that the Democrats spent to an otherwise bankrupt campaign. Clearly, could have easily made that that, that difference up. Uh, so they they are. You know, they have fingerprints on, on, on the Gibbs nomination. And number two, this is not a shoo-in for the Democrat, even though it is a Biden, I think it's a Biden right. plus eight district. It, it leans, I think, the Democrats way now, but it is so far from a sure thing, especially if Republicans have a wave type election. Uh, and, and they could be you know, promoting a, not just a election denier, but someone who's made some pretty uh, inflammatory, bigoted statements on social media and, and would be, you know, a very controversial fo- voice for Republicans if elected to Congress. Yeah. And, and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, you know, spent $435,000 on an ad buy to promote Gibbs in the final days leading up to the uh, the primary. And Peter Meyer actually wrote a piece uh, for a publication called Common Sense, where he said, you know, the, the DCCC's ad buy was more than Gibbs raised over the entire duration of his campaign. It was also nearly 100 times, 100 times the support Donald Trump himself offered to Gibbs. Trump, you know, basically gave him $5,000 from his super PAC. In other words, the Democrats were not merely attempting to boost a candidate over the finish line. They were subsidizing his entire campaign, which I have to say is, you you and I are both, you know, know that cynicism is nothing new, but this does seem like playing with with fire and especially given this year 
in doing anything to put these really dangerous guys closer to the finish line to power is really an unforgivable political sin. That's right. I mean, if you zoom out a little bit, Trump is endorsed in a lot of these congressional or gubernatorial primaries. A lot of his candidates are just not very good at raising money, running a professional campaign. His endorsement wasn't enough in in some of these primaries. They needed money to get that message out, to remind voters on the Republican side that Trump endorsed them. And, And again, many of these candidates did not have the money to do so, and that's where the Democrats came in. That's where, in Maryland, you saw the same situation where Larry Hogan's preferred successor looked like she had the, the, the support to win because her opponent had no money. And all of a sudden, the Democrats came in with a, over a million dollars reminding voters on the Republican side who the Trump-endorsed candidate was. Uh, same thing in this Michigan race. So th- th- there's this unholy alliance of Democrats who want the MAGA candidates to be nominate, nominated because they think they can win some of these races more easily. And you have the MAGA side of the the Republican Party that also wants the the, the more extreme candidates to get through. So it it, it is they're playing with fire. And in Michigan, and like I said, in Michigan, Gibbs has a chance to win. The, the Trump candidate does have a chance to win, even though it's less than what Meyer would have had in the midterms. All right, let's talk about Missouri. Donald Trump sort of decided he was going to be a troll rather than anything else uh, and, and announced his endorsement for Eric. Of course, there were multiple Erics in the race. Eric Greitens, the thoroughly deplorable, um, wife-beating, disgraced former governor, um, and uh, Eric Schmidt, uh, who has become sort of a you know Trump-adjacent uh, re- Republican. Uh, in, in, in some ways, well, first of all, I mean, this is not rocket science. Trump, Trump whiffed on this and just wanted to claim that his, you know, that his candidate was going to win, right? Because it was either going to be Eric Greitens or Eric Schmidt. So he just, you know, r- rather rather than help Republicans who want who were terrified at the prospect of Eric Greitens being the nominee, he just figured he was going to throw it out because it's all about Trump. And it's just he he just wanted to be able to claim a win, right? I mean, there's. It's not, it's not that complicated, right? Well, it, it, I think we're missing a little bit of the big picture <laughs> that instead of going for the easy win with a guy who is clearly supportive of Trump and Eric Schmidt, yeah. he, he couldn't give up on Eric Greitens, who was a disgraced former governor, credibly accused of, of, of domestic abuse from his ex-wife. The fact that it took him till the very last minute to even decide and he couldn't endorse the guy who was going to win goes to show how you know, bankrupt the, the operation is in, in Mar-a-Lago. And look, that, that's, a, that's a real problem uh, going forward for, for Trump, that, you know, he has a lot of power. He still controls a whole lot of levers within the Republican Party. But it's that, you know, almost pandering to the, the, the most extreme elements of the party that could really be costly, especially if some of these candidates don't win in November. The candidates on the Trump slate yeah. don't win these swing states and swing districts. So so Mitch McConnell's folks are sort of, you know, leaking out the whisper that, well, you know, McConnell played this role behind the scenes in taking out Eric Greitens, who really would have been a disaster on the on the November ballot. And they're, they're I, I think, trying to do a little bit of a victory lap that that uh, they quietly had tanked his campaign. You know, my colleague Amanda, though, tweeted out a really interesting question. She said, you know, Mitch McConnell and the responsible establishment Republicans defeated Eric Greitens, but they were powerless to do anything to stop Carrie Lake in Arizona, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. Tell me the logic problem here. I mean, it's kind of interesting. It's like they're going, see, see what we did in Missouri? 
But I think she makes a great point. They were not able to do anything about these other, you know, the, you know, the, the, the batshit crazy candidates in, in, in Arizona, Pennsylvania and, uh, and Georgia, all absolutely critical swing states. I think that's a really good point, Charlie. Now, I, I do understand why McConnell, they, they basically waited to don't McConnell's uh, super PAC essentially waited to donate against Greitens until the deadline had passed to, to reveal the sources of donations. So the McConnell folks didn't want Greitens to basically say this is McConnell money coming in against me. They waited till the till the deadline had passed to disclose that stuff. So I, I get the strategy and why they waited at the end in, in Missouri. But I think you raise an important larger point, which is that Republicans largely have been cowards in confronting Trump or Trump-aligned candidates in many of these races. They, there hasn't been a super PAC in, in Maryland uh, going in to help the more moderate candidate. There wasn't a, a super PAC in some of these right. governor races like Pennsylvania to make sure Doug Mastriano didn't emerge with the nomination. Uh, you, you can actually see Missouri is actually a good example of how when, when you actually put, put, put some money together and, and, and really focus, you can actually prevent bad candidates, extreme candidates from winning nominations. We've seen it in a lot of other, other states as well. But Kemp in Georgia, for example, and DeWine in Ohio, the RGA actually backed the incumbents, went up against the Trump-endorsed candidates. But there's a fear of that just people don't want to alienate, donors don't want to alienate Trump, they don't want to the, the pick up that hornet's nest. So you have so many examples of where Republicans almost let Democrats meddle in their own primaries and didn't fight back, didn't need to do anything to help promote the most electable, most mainstream candidates in, in winning these races. Okay, so let's talk about Arizona, because uh, in in case there was any doubt about uh, Trump's influence in the party or the power of the big lie, you don't need to look much past uh, Arizona, where conspiracist uh, Carrie Lake, uh, has she been been called as as winning that primary or she's still just leading? I think she's won. It hasn't been called yet, though she's looking in pretty good shape. And she is, I mean, talk about, you know, woolly out there. Blake Masters, who's the Peter uh, Thiel-backed candidate, uh, won the primary for Senate. This uh, Trump-backed election denier who openly acknowledges his links to the Oath Keeper won the nomination for Arizona Secretary of State Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the Arizona House, who testified before the January 6th committee, lost his primary Tuesday. Now, Arizona is one of these on the razor's edge states in presidential politics. Uh, Democrats have been doing better. Republicans have been doing worse. So Republicans have reacted to their losses by doubling down on the crazy. So talk to me about what's going on there. Now, that governor's race was also a proxy fight between Trump and Mike Pence. Mike Pence's endorsed candidate, uh, who was uh, the, the quote unquote, you know, the sane Republican or the establishment Republican uh, candidate. It was close. But Arizona's Republican Party has gone full, full MAGA. Yeah, they have. It, it's full Trump dominance. Yeah. And it's a, a big rebuke, frankly, against Governor Ducey and against Vice President Mike Pence, who spent some very valuable political capital on behalf of, of Robeson, who, by the way, Robeson outspent Carrie Lake by like nine to ten times on the airwaves. So, Interesting. You know, a win is a win. Like she, she, she definitely had to deal with a lot of uh, – high-profile uh, endorsements and efforts to stop her from winning that nomination, and it looks like she's she's going to prevail. Uh, Arizona's a magnified party, and uh, the Republican Party has given in to the worst impulses of, of, of Trump's election denialism and conspiracy theories. Now, I, you know, my big question is, will these candidates win a swing state well, in November? And this is going to be the big test. I mean, I, we see this in that primaries, especially on the Republican side, getting more extreme, 
but those candidates like a Mastriano in Pennsylvania or some of these these more extreme candidates in other other races like Michigan they they're not going to be favored in the general election. So this will be a especially given that we're expecting a good Republican environment in November. This will be a test whether some of these most uh, exotic extreme candidates can win in November. They they were able to win a narrow slice of the Republican primary electorate, but Arizona's a a swing state now and it's a state that suburban voters around Phoenix may not look kindly at some of the the rhetoric from these Republican nominees. Well, and that's what's interesting about all of this because you look at the overall environment, which continues to favor Republicans. It may be a wave year. Who knows how intense it will be? And yet, um, this does feel like, I, mean, I think you have 2010 or 2012, where Republicans just basically blew one race after another. So um, Georgia was winnable for them, but they decided to go with Herschel Walker. That may be off the table. Pennsylvania uh, should be a good, you know, a possibly good year for Republicans in a, in a wave year. And Dr. Oz is trailing uh, John Fetterman uh, now by a considerable margin. Uh, the governor's race appears to be probably lost because they, they went with Doug Mastriano. So you have Georgia, you have Pennsylvania, you have Arizona, which again, you know, should be a swing state. And they've decided to go full MAGA. Had Eric Greitens won the primary in, in Missouri, that state might have been in play as well. So, this is kind of the interesting storyline, isn't it? You know, are Republicans going to nut job themselves out of a big year? And, you know, we'll find out what the rules of politics are. Right. My, my line in, in, in analyzing what's going to happen in the midterms is Republicans have the advantage in these swing states and swing districts if they nominate mainstream candidates. But as you noted, Charlie, you, you just named a bunch of these big Senate races where they're trying to do their darndest to to blow very winnable opportunities. Uh, it could cost them the Senate majority when all is said and done. And that is the headache that Mitch McConnell is facing, that Republicans are dealing with. It used to be that like, if, if you nominate losers that can't win swing states, there's a course correction. You realize you have to go in a different direction. But the Republican Party seems, in many of these states, not every state, and Washington state is an exception to the rule, it seems. And, and you have actually two pro-impeachment Republicans that look like they may prevail in their primaries. But in, in some of these states, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, the doubling down of the crazy is just going to uh, really, really hurt Republicans' chances, not just in those states, but to take back power in, in Washington. Well, you mentioned the pro-impeachment congressman that may survive in the state of Washington. In, in large part, that's because they have a jungle primary there. The electoral system is different. We don't have time to get into a really wonky discussion about you know, how jungle primaries change the nature of our politics, make it less binary. But if folks out there are looking for a reform that might change the kind of hyper-polarization that we have, things like jungle primaries, ranked choice voting, really do change the game in a, in a fundamental way. Do you agree? They do. They change the incentives. Everything. Instead of playing to the crazy, you actually have to play a little bit more right. to the middle. And that that is a big difference. In fact, it's not just uh, Washington State, but David Valadeo mm-hmm. was able to win California. in California. Same type of system there. And in Alaska uh, in a couple of weeks, it looks like Lisa Murkowski is, is in pretty good shape against a Trump-endorsed challenger. And Sarah Palin is not in good shape uh, because they have a another type of system. It's called ranked choice where it, it empowers moderates and empowers less ideological extremists uh, that dominate these primaries. So 
that look, it's going to be a hell of a time getting Republicans to, to support some of those changes, yeah, given who runs these Republican parties in the states. But that that is a reform that really does make a big difference. That the moderates get empowered, and you have more mainstream candidates that emerge. So. Talk to me about your piece over the weekend that the left is losing momentum. You wrote that before the primary, but um, you know what? What are you what are you seeing? Because there are there are still a lot of folks that think that uh, the the salvation of the Democratic Party is to move to the left, is to embrace the progressives. That that's where the energy is. That if you want to turn out voters, you need to have. Uh, Bernie Sanders slash Elizabeth Warren type of candidates. You disagree, I take it. Not just disagreeing, but we looked at the data. We looked at the, at the numbers in, in this year's midterms. And so far, at least before last night's election results, 14 of the 22 contested Democratic primaries featuring a moderate against a progressive were won by the moderate candidate. And in many cases, that's allowed Democrats to actually uh, have a chance to win some swing seats that they otherwise wouldn't be able to win. In fact, in the, in the handful of races that the progressives prevailed in, uh, many of them, they, they, they lost opportunities. Like Kurt Schrader lost his primary in Oregon. He would have been the favorite to win re-election, but the more liberal candidate who did win that primary is now facing a very tough, tough campaign. Uh, with your home, I mean, you've written about this a ton, Charlie, mm-hmm. but biggest test of like progressive electability is going to be in Wisconsin mm-hmm. with Mandela Barnes now emerging as the as the Democratic Senate nominee. I mean, he's taken a whole slew of uh, positions on bail reform and Green New Deal and his alliances with some of the squad members in the House. Uh, th- those are going to come back to haunt him, I believe, in this November campaign. Well, it'll, be, yeah. it'll be a true test. I think Wisconsin, you know, given you know, th- Ron Johnson is not a popular senator, but uh, Democrats need to nominate someone in the mainstream themselves to take advantage of that opportunity. And it looks like we'll, we'll see. We'll see what those results hold. But it'll be a very powerful signal on you know what the electability is of, of some of these progressive. Well, that, that was my take when I read your piece when you're talking about how look here's the clear formula that if you move to the center you're going to be winning in these swing states and these swing districts. I mean, and 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 the Democrats around the country seem to be getting that. Uh, they they seem to be going with with electable, prudent moderates, with the exception again of Wisconsin. We seem to be an outlier where the most unabashed progressive, somebody who has toyed with defund the police, abolish ICE, Green New Deal, you know, cash bail reform, all of those issues, is now the nominee. And as I've been saying, look, Ron Johnson before this year was the most vulnerable Republican incumbent in a state that I think might find him too embarrassing, too extreme, too reckless. But now, instead of being a referendum on Ron Johnson's craziness, it's going to be a choice between Ron Johnson, you know, right-wing Republican, and Mandela Barnes, who is an unabashed progressive. And you know that the Republicans are going to be dropping about $20 million worth of oppo research on Mandela Barnes very shortly. He's not that well-known, even though he's the lieutenant governor. It's an obscure position. They will be able to define him before he really gets his sea legs. And because everybody dropped out of the primary, Mandela Barnes is really not tested. I mean, sometimes you've seen this, Josh, you know, uh, a candidate, uh, you know, you you find out what a candidate is made of by being tested by fire in the primary. Instead, I think the most vulnerable candidate comes out essentially unvetted and is going to face not just a, a political environment 
that is hostile, but just a ton of negative advertising. I mean, that is the dynamic of Wisconsin's uh, Senate race. Yeah, I mean, look, they, the, the Democrats on Barnes's campaign say Tammy Baldwin was able to win as a progressive in 2018, but even Tammy Baldwin didn't run as far to the left as as, as Barnes has in that Democratic race and, and has done in the past. And the environment obviously is a whole lot more favorable for Republicans. In well, and Tammy Baldwin's also a very good politician. Okay, so let's just shift over a little bit to the governor's race and some other some crazy things happening here in Wisconsin. We also have a proxy fight here between Trump and Pence and between Trump and former Governor Scott Walker in the race for governor. But I mean, what what is also interesting is Trump's role here. He's coming into Wisconsin. He's going to be here on Friday for a rally supporting Tim Michaels, who is this basically out-of-state businessman that he has endorsed against uh, the former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish. This is bitterly dividing Republicans. The, the race has become negative. And now Trump has just, is become obsessed with defeating the most powerful Republican legislator in Wisconsin, Robin Voss, the Speaker of the Assembly, because Robin Voss will not support decertifying the 2020 election. I mean, Voss has created an investigation. I mean, he's tried to appease the Trumpists as much as he can, but but he drew the line at decertifying the election. So Trump is coming in. He's endorsing this extreme primary opponent who not only believes in you know election conspiracies, but favors banning contraception. And it, it is interesting watching this dynamic where you have Trump coming in and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because I was talking to a rather well-connected Republican this morning and his take was that Trump being so obsessed with decertifying the election and defeating Voss is actually making him look like kind of a mad scientist even to uh, some Trump supporters and he's clearing the way for some opposition. So Trump is flexing his muscles, but I, I kind of wonder about the bad will he's leaving behind about Republicans who uh, are being reminded who Donald Trump is. What do you think? Trump is a disruptive force. He's not a constructive force in most of these Republican races. He's going against where the party leaders are. And, and there's been these desperate trips to Mar-a-Lago to try to get Trump not to endorse Eric Greitens or not to do something crazy that could really upset the apple cart in some of these very winnable races. Wisconsin's a great, great example of that. Uh, you know, Rebecca Clayfish looked like she was going to be the, the nominee until Trump intervened on behalf of, of Tim Michaels. And now it's just pure chaos in, 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 in that Republican Party in Wisconsin. Uh, you, you know, you see it in Arizona. And, and, and in many of these races, it's, it's, there's going to be a cost in the general election. Uh, not only is that disrupting Republican unity in Wisconsin, but, you know, the abortion issue, too, in Wisconsin has yep. become front and center and Evers. Binary choice. That's one of the states where abortion policy is going to hang in the balance based on who who's governor. And that's an issue that Evers, who's not run a or not had a particularly uh, effective first first term in office. But that's an issue that that is going to be uh, led by him. Uh, and I may, I may tilt some swing voters his way come November. No, this is one of those years where the Republicans are almost by any measure poised to win here in Wisconsin. And the question is, how could they blow it? Well, by dividing themselves as bitterly as they are right now and by having an issue like um, like abortion, which, um, you know, will, as, as, as Kansas indicated, will turn out Democratic voters in places like Milwaukee and Madison and will turn off the swing voters. 
And of course, you know, Trump's intervention here is he is forcing Republicans to take the most extreme possible positions on, say, election denial. So it, it is interesting. This is the first time in a long time that I've heard buzz from people who have completely acquiesced to Trumpism, basically saying we are so sick of this. And of course, my response is always, as you can guess, Josh, oh, if only you had been warned. Oh, wait. <laughs> really? You're finding out that, you know, these are the members of the, you know, leopards eating people's faces party, and they're just shocked that, that it's going to eat their face too. I mean, that's, that's part of the, the irony of, of all of this. So what else are you looking at uh, in terms of what's happening in, in politics? We're, we're, we're getting a pretty clear, um, I mean, the, the, it, it feels like the, the primary picture is, is clearing up, um, removing any ambiguity about Trump's control of the party, uh, whether the party was going to engage in course correction. Do you feel, you sort of hinted at this before, I mean, the assumption has been this is going to be this massive Republican wave. I still think it's going to be a wave, but I don't know how intense it's going to be, especially given the kind of crazy we're talking about. What do you think? So I think environmentally, the the wave still is out there. Yeah. It's still looking yeah. very likely. Right. So we may see like a Swiss cheese type environment where, you know, there are holes in the otherwise promising a list of races that Republicans are, are targeting. Like, if you have an extreme candidate, if you have someone who's taken a, a position on abortion outside of the majority, if you've aligned yourself too closely with Trump, like a Blake Masters in Arizona, for example, you're going to pay a price. There's going to be a cost. And the question is, how big is that cost? And can some of these Republican candidates ride a, a huge wave? Can Herschel Walker benefit from the desire for from Georgia voters to put a check on uh, the Democratic power in Washington? Or is his baggage, is his inability to talk coherently about policy at times, is that enough of an of a obstacle for him to get elected? I think Republicans, at the very least, are going to put a seat or two on the Senate side on the table because of not ready for primetime candidates. The question is, does that cost them the Senate majority? See, that I think is the big question, because I, I think it, it seems overwhelmingly likely that Republicans are going to take the House. Their margin does matter, though, doesn't it? Um, a, a, a very, a very, very slim margin will make it very difficult, A, for Kevin McCarthy to become speaker and B, for Kevin McCarthy to be an effective uh, speaker. So there, there is a substantial difference. I don't know where you draw the line. I, I'm thinking that, you know, um, 230 seats um, would be kind of their minimum that that if they if they get less than uh, 230 seats, um, they're going to have a hell of a hard time keeping that uh, that that crazified caucus together. Yeah, I think the, um, the number I have is about 20 seats. A 20-seat game is what House Republicans need to give Kevin McCarthy a, a legislative comfortable majority to work with. So you don't have Marjorie Taylor Greene exerting veto power and Matt Gates exerting veto power on on, on the, the Republican uh, agenda. It could be very chaotic if it's a very narrow majority. All you have to do is look at Nancy Pelosi's I know, challenge I know. in, in this, the, this current Congress. And I'm working on a piece along these lines. House Republicans have actually done a better job. There, there are some crazy House Republican candidates, but only in Michigan, in the Meyer race we've been talking about, that's really the only race so far where Republicans nominated a Trump-endorsed candidate who could cost Republicans a seat. And, and, and we've talked about McConnell getting involved in some of these primaries or in Missouri. Under the radar, there actually has been a lot more House Republican money 
very quietly in some of these primaries to get a more diverse, more mainstream candidates getting through the primaries. And Trump doesn't have the attention span. <laughs> he, he focuses on the big names. He hasn't focused quite, except for Liz Cheney and maybe one or two other races. He just doesn't have the attention to focus on all these different House races. So it's allowed Republicans to get a more moderate, more mainstream recruiting class, even though there are a few, few MAGA candidates in the mix. So since we're having this conversation, do you think that Joe Biden runs for re-election? I don't. I, I've been. I was on yeah. uh, Sarah's podcast. I was yeah. kind of screaming from the rooftops that I just think the the environment and the age is just a big hurdle for him to overcome, and it's gotten louder. Uh, the, the Democrats have been much more outspoken about not wanting Biden to run again. I see. I would have agreed with you solidly two weeks ago. I'm, I'm wondering now whether or not, and we talked about this a little bit earlier whether the sort of conventional wisdom slash narrative is going to be shifting with this winning streak that he has legislatively and, you know, getting getting al-Qaeda leaders and et cetera. There's a herd mentality when it comes to this. And so we've gone from the he's Jimmy Carter failed president to what? I don't know. Does that change this environment? Because I think it felt like we were very, very close to a consensus that we're kind of done with Joe Biden maybe a month ago. Will we feel that way a month from now? Well, look, I, I think age is the bigger factor, less than competence um, among Democrats, at least. So that that still is a factor um, for, for Democratic voters. Look, I, the, the best thing for Bi- going for Biden running again is just the, the, the desire for stasis, the desire not to shake up the apple cart, because candidly, like without Biden in the mix, it's going to be a big mess, too. And plenty of Democratic doubts about Vice President Kamala Harris being uh, able to step in and rebuild that Biden coalition. And if without her, without anyone in that role, you'll have a wide open, messy civil war between the left and the middle. And that won't be good for the Democratic Party either. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that that's the problem is that the moment you say, yeah, Biden shouldn't run, then you get to the plan B and Democrats get very, very nervous because their plan B is by far from clear. Josh Kroshauer, thank you so much for coming back on the Bulwark podcast the day after this big primary. It was great to talk with you. Thanks, Charlie. It was great to be back. The Bulwark podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.